earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me on A Word from the Word. We're continuing our journey through Colossians. Our series title is Don't Lose Your Head, taken from Colossians 2.19. The podcasts are posted at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. Today's part five is, Are You Putting Me On?, We've been tracing the idea of the supremacy of Christ in all things as we delve into this intriguing letter to the Christ followers in Colossae. But before we do, I'd like to share the story about three young children who were playing in a neighborhood playground while snow was falling that quickly blanketed the ground. A neighbor came by and said, Would you kids like to have a race and the winner get a prize? Well, three kids couldn't refuse that. But the neighbor told them this was going to be a different kind of race. I'll be standing on the other side of the playground, he said, and when I signal with my hand, start running. The one whose footsteps are the straightest in the snow will be the winner. Well, they lined up. As the man signaled from the other side of the playground, they bolted like lightning. The first kid kept looking down at his feet to make sure his steps were straight. The second kid just looked at the other two to see what they were doing. But the third kid just ran with a vengeance, his eyes fixed on that man standing on the other side of the playground. Naturally, this third kid won and got the prize. His footsteps were the straightest because he kept his eyes focused on that man ahead of him, that man symbolizing the goal of the race. Friends, simply stated, the Christian life is a matter of focus. Oftentimes our eyes in Scripture symbolize the disposition of the mind or the heart, their main direction and focus of attention. And I believe this was Jesus' intent in Matthew five twenty nine and 30. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. <laughs> you see, friends, behind seeing is thinking, and thinking is often followed by doing. The eye awakens the power of the mind, and the mind directs our thoughts and eventually our actions. Hands in Scripture often symbolize our deeds or actions. In Psalm 24, 3 and 4, we read, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. In biblical terms, clean hands and a pure heart stand for 
outward deeds and inward desires. And there must be consistency between these two. Otherwise, we can rightly be called hypocrites. Now, let me clarify something here before we go on. Every Christian will never do everything perfectly right every time. Did you hear that, friends? Even Christians will never do everything perfectly right every time. Can any of you hearing this claim, you do everything perfectly right every time? <laughs> you see, we fallen humans are not immune to errors, mistakes, inconsistencies, even committing sins against each other. But the difference, now listen carefully, the difference is whether we're genuine or two-faced about our actions. You see, if we're genuine in our Christian lives, we'll humble ourselves when we've wronged others or sin against them, and we'll seek forgiveness and restoration. But if we're two-faced about our Christianity, we'll generally be defensive and try to justify our bad behavior or inconsistencies and cover them up. This is rightly called hypocrisy. Now, in our journey through the book of Colossians, we discover that the end of chapter 2 going into chapter 3 begins a transition point or stepping stone for Paul. The clues are his use of the words, therefore, if then, since. This trademark of Paul appears in Romans 12, Ephesians 4, Philippians 4. These transition points generally move from affirming Christian truth to exhorting to live out those truths. In other words, from statements of conviction to life applications, from emphases on what we believe to how those beliefs are to be lived out. So let's look at Colossians 3. And since this trademark of Paul appears here as well, we can deduce from this pattern that Paul clearly believed that conduct emerges out of a deeply held conviction. You see, Paul was convinced that behavior should be a natural outgrowth of the transformation experience when we die to sin and are raised to new life in Christ. So here's Colossians 3, 1 through 17. Since then you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with or put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. 
If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God through the the Father, through him. Notice how Paul closes this portion with verse 17. He understands that words and deeds must be consistent. Profession and practice must go together. Let's review verse 1. Since you've been raised up with Christ. Since can also be translated therefore if, as the NAS has it. I've said often that when we see the word therefore, where to find out what it's there for. In 3.1, Paul builds a bridge from 2.20, since you died with Christ. And now in 3.1, he says, since you've been raised with Christ. Now, since here can be translated either since or if. Since is a better English choice because Paul is stating something based on the settled fact that Christ rose from the dead. There's no doubt Let's review 2.20 for a moment. This is the second mention of this phrase, the elementary principles of the world, the first being in 2.8. I said earlier that the Christian life is a matter of focus, and this focus is often made clearer when viewed through the lens of contrasts. Notice that Paul sets up a contrast between the basic principles of this world and the person of Christ. 2.8 begins, see to it that no one takes you captive. Paul is basically telling the Colossian Christians to not let anyone or anything shift their focus from Christ or take their focus off Christ. Recall 2.4, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And the this is declared in verse 3, which assures them that Jesus Christ is the one in whom are all the hidden treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Remember last time we learned that the false teachings infiltrating the Colossian fellowship were primarily centered around challenging the supremacy of Christ, dethroning him. In other words, from his superior position as creator and Lord of all created things, both visible and invisible, per chapter 1, verses 15 through 17. And that created order includes all the angels, both the faithful ones and the fallen ones, those loyal to God and those who became turncoats. We generally refer to the disloyal angels who fell as the demons, demonic spirits, or unclean spirits. Both the biblical vocabulary and the cultic vocabulary use terms to describe all the angels as being grouped into ranks or delegated powers, per chapter 1, verse 16, where we see mentioned thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities. In 2.10, power and authority are repeated. In 2.15, Christ disarms the powers and authorities, triumphing over them by the cross. Also note 2.18. Then we come to 2.20, where this peculiar phrase occurs. The basic principles of this world. 
I'm convinced that both contexts in chapter 2 refer to cosmic spirits or an angelic order. The context in 2.15 where Christ disarms them and triumphs over them must refer to the fallen angels or cosmic beings. I believe what helps us to arrive at this conclusion is what Paul says in 2.18 about some in their midst being coaxed to worship angels and testify about visions they've seen. Paul concludes they've lost their connection to the head, meaning Christ, and are puffed up with pride by their unspiritual mind and false humility. In other words, they've missed the goal, the focus. Interestingly, the word worship here is not the customary word used for worship in other places in the New Testament. It points us to worship based on ceremonialism and ritual acts. It hints at the fact that it's likely not heart-driven, but head-driven worship, one that operates on a formality. Paul's word choice here alludes to the Gnostic false doctrines that include exalting celestial beings and entering into worship either of or along with various ranks of angels. And this phrase, basic principles of the world, may be translated elemental spiritual forces of this world or elemental spirits of the universe. This translation is preferred by the NRSV. It's likely that the NRSV translation committee chose this wording because the Greek word was typically used in magical writings, astrology texts, and some Jewish occult documents in the first century. In other words, it was used to refer to angelic beings or cosmic spirits of demonic origin. That first century Jewish occult document refers to beings calling themselves the world rulers of the darkness of this age. Remember, friends, one of the keys to understanding Colossians is recognizing Paul's use of terms and phrases that make up the cultic vocabulary of his day, terms that flow through the whole letter. And so this particular expression, used only by Paul and used only in Colossians, may be added to Paul's arsenal. Also, remember, we've been unearthing this cultic vocabulary and identifying several of its terms throughout this series, like knowledge, fullness, mystery, perfect, firstborn, redemption. Now, there's another element that ties in with demonic spirits of angelic origin. It's in verse eight, it's in 2.18. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. The phrase goes into great detail actually is difficult to translate. It's only since the archaeological discovery of the pagan temple of Apollos that we're now able to understand the cultural religious context of this phrase. On the walls of Apollo's temple are inscriptions of this phrase referring to official delegations coming to consult or invoke the oracle. The initiation rituals originated with the Greek mystery religions, and this phrase represents the second highest stage of the ritual. The core component of the ritual was visionary experiences. An alternate way to understand this phrase is taking his stand on visions he has seen, found in the NAS and the NRSV. 
From a Christian viewpoint, these visions would be visions of a cultic angelic nature and not revelations from the good angels now in heaven. Friends, you could easily wonder why all this gobbledygook is important or think, what's the big deal here? You could even say, thanks, pastor. We can tell that you study. So what? Well, why is this important to understand chapter 3? Is the fact that in the minds of the false teachers, these angelic beings possessed supernatural powers and controlled the stars and the destiny or fate of people. And so people devised ways of remaining in favor with these angelic beings, these supposed deities, for the purpose of having their lives free of troubles or disasters. Some of these ways were practicing aspects of Jewish legalism, especially external demonstrations of humility, harsh treatment of the body, 2.21 and 22, circumcision, 2.11, dietary laws, 2.16, and careful observances of Jewish festivals, also in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Paul's strong yet fitting conclusion of chapter 2, verses 22 and 23 say, These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence." You see, friends, these human commands are hollow and deceptive and constitute a philosophy rooted in human traditions rather than on Christ. In 2.8, notice how Paul pits human philosophical systems against or in opposition to the person of Christ. He counsels us not to lose our focus. I said earlier, the Christian life is all about focus. Our focus is the head of the body, Christ, and why this series is called Don't Lose Your Head. This is why, friends, Paul wants us to remain focused on the supremacy of Christ in all things, and why this is the subtitle to our Colossians study. You see, friends, the transition to chapter 3 is returning to the focus of Christ over the angelic beings who've instilled fear in their followers, perceived as controlling the heavens and people's lives and destinies. Wouldn't you be fearful of doing the right things to keep these angels happy? By shifting the focus back to Christ, Paul is instilling freedom in the minds of the Colossians, freedom from living under the bondage of human teachings and human traditions and philosophies. Because we've died with Christ and have been raised with Christ, our heart has a new affection, a new direction, upwards. Chapter 3, verse 1 nails it. Set your hearts on upward things. Set your minds on upward things, not on earthly lower things, but on upward things, specifically where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Even here, Paul turns a word in the cult of vocabulary upside down. 3.3 says, For your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Paul intentionally takes the Gnostic and Greek mystery religion's idea of mystery and declares that it's the Christian whose life is hidden or protected with Christ in God. No need to fear angelic rivalries. 
Plus, the focus has now shifted from strictly external appearances to internal realities. And this internal reality includes the power of Christ to live in a way pleasing to God, as Paul's prayer in chapter 1 indicates. And this Christ performs a spiritual circumcision in our hearts. Now, we dethrone self and enthrone Christ who sits on the throne. He becomes the head of our lives, King and Lord. And as the head, he becomes supreme. When his will becomes supreme, our will and our old way of living dies because we've died with Christ. That's why the list of ungodly behaviors are there, so our focus can be shifted again from the sin-filled life to the Christ-filled life. The sin-filled life is just a manifestation of the supremacy of self and sin. The Christ-filled life is a manifestation of the supremacy of Christ. Notice the contrasting phrases Paul uses to shift our focus, putting off and putting on, seen in 2.11 and 3.9-12. through 12. And here's where I came up with today's title. Are you putting me on? Are you putting on Christ? The put-off list begins in 3.5 and represents the sensual sins. The second grouping of put-offs are the social sins, beginning at 3.7. Anger, slander, lying, rage. Whoa! We've been renewed now in the image of our Creator, and the context of Colossians demands we interpret Creator as Christ. We're now to reflect His image, be conformed to His image more and more. And now to the list of put-ons, the social virtues, 3, 12 through 14. What a list! Imagine just living out these three verses, clothing ourselves with or putting on holiness, being compassionate, being kind, being humble, being gentle, being patient, being forgiving, being loving, and being in unity. Whoa! Jesus could say here, are you putting me on? Finally, Paul concludes this portion of chapter 3, appealing to our wills, using the two let's, Verses 15 and 16, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and let the message or word of Christ dwell among you richly. Friends, the peace of Christ cannot rule in our hearts if Christ himself is not ruling there, if Christ himself is not supreme, and the word of Christ cannot dwell among us richly if we're not in the word. You see, the question is not whether we're in the word, but is rather, is the word dwelling in us? And dwelling richly, does the word of God have free access to all parts of our life? Friends, let's make some questions personal today. Does the word of God have free access to all parts of my life? Do I highly prize the word of God and appreciate it? You see, friends, only then can we do what the rest of the verse says. Teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And all this manifests itself in our congregational life of worship, singing, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs. And here's our final shift. What is worship supposed to do? 
It's supposed to shift our focus from ourselves to Christ. It's not at all about us. It's about Christ, making him supreme in our lives. Paul now puts the finishing touch on in verse 17 with, Whatever you do! Evidently, he wanted to make sure he covered all bases, just in case his three big lists weren't enough, he thought. Whatever you do! You see, everything we do should be done in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, the Christian life is a matter of focus, focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ. When 3.15 said, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, it begs these questions. Is Christ absolute ruler? Are there other mediators out there, human or angelic? Do other rulers rule our destiny? Or does Christ? Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we're at the end of our program. Today's broadcast will close with an email where you may write me. I'm so thankful to those of you who write in. And all of the podcasts are accessible at faithtalk1360.com. Just search the menu for local program podcasts. And since A Word from the Word is a listener-supported program, if it's blessing you, please join the support team, especially now in these challenging financial times. Your support keeps this program on the air. Just email me for the details. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a word from the word. Friends, if you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at a word from the word at minister.com. That's a word from the word at minister.com.